Hey, welcome back to the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate podcast, where we venture behind the headlines to figure out what's really happening with the issues of the day, with the help of expert guests from the worlds of politics and culture. Your host is anthropologist and broadcaster Sally Warhaft. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and welcome to the Fifth Estate at the Wheeler Centre. I'm Sally Warhaft, and it is my pleasure tonight to uh, introduce two guests to continue, but in a specific, a more specific way, I suppose, a conversation that has been ongoing for this series over the last three years about our political culture. And I think that um, it's something we've tried to come at in all sorts of directions. Uh, but one of the one of the ones we haven't looked at is the role of the Chief of Staff and the Prime Ministerial Office. So uh, this evening it's a great uh, pleasure to welcome Anne Tiernan. Anne is Associate Professor at the Centre for Governance and Public Policy at Griffith University. And she is the co-author of this book, The Gatekeepers. And it's uh, Lessons from Prime Minister's Chiefs of Staff. It's published by MUP. And I think the Camberwell Dimmick's Bookshop down the back, selling copies after this event this evening. Uh, The book was based on workshops uh, that Anne and her co-author conducted with uh, 11 former chiefs of staff since, uh, and including Malcolm Fraser's. Also on stage this evening is somebody who actually survived being a chief of staff, uh, and, well, not just in general, but actually to Kevin Rudd. Uh, (laughs) Not necessarily intact. David Epstein was uh, Kevin's first chief of staff. Thank God for that. You wouldn't want to be the last. And, uh, look, he began his career as a political advisor... Uh, and served in various ways numerous people, uh, including John Dawkins, Bob Hawke, Paul Keating and Kim Beasley. David is also a corporate executive advisor and he's worked for Qantas, BHP, he's a board member of Opera Australia and he's currently working for Optus. So please give him a warm wheeler welcome. It's such a closed world that you write about, Anne, uh, and that you lived in, David, but a a really important one. We've seen a lot of books written, particularly lately, uh, and we've had a few of the the authors here, Greg Combay, Wayne Swan, Paul Kelly's book uh, about the the triumph and demise of uh, Rudd-Gillard governments, a lot of things that are sort of looking into our political culture and particularly as it is at this time, but um, very few that look at at that layer of power and structure um, in between a Prime Minister and his or her people. There have been books uh, like Stephen Mill's The Professionals that looked at um, uh, the role of uh, uh, more the Labor and Liberal organisations. Um, and I even go back to something like Don Watson's book, Re- Recollection of a Bleeding Heart, which was a more like an ethnography, I suppose, of a Prime Minister's office, but not that specific role of, of Chief of Staff. And your book comes at a time, I think, of... I mean, we, we throw the word crisis around pretty loosely, don't we? But 
Uh, I think that a lot of people would agree that political culture at the moment is messy to say and unattractive to say the very least. So this singular role of, of a chief of staff, can you tell us the broad responsibilities of that person? Sure. Well, this project um, was really about trying to understand the work of the Chief of Staff from the perspective of people who'd done the job. And a lot of books that are written, and particularly a lot of commentary that's out there, imposes categories. Um, and we were interested in replicating uh, a methodology that had been used in the US, where former Chiefs of Staff come together in a way to try and help uh, incomers uh, learn some lessons. There's no institutional memory uh, for people to access, so that was what we were interested in. So the observations that the Chiefs of Staff offered us were, you know, described the job uh, as being to support the Prime Minister and to protect the Prime Minister. That's the, the sort of the bottom line. Uh, and uh, we categorised their observations into support for the office uh, and then support for the person. Um, and those are two quite interesting and distinct support responsibilities. So we weren't trying to make it about what we as political scientists thought about how it is we were trying to bring out the world as the people who are there, trying to help Prime Ministers to cope and survive, um, which is what they're trying to do a lot of the time. Um, we were really trying to bring those perspectives forward. I'd never thought in any sort of systematic way about what the role would be, but wow, when I read what it entails, I thought it, being Prime Minister would be easier, I reckon, because at least someone's going to tell you what to eat and they're going to make sure your family's okay, you're going to be watered and, uh, you know, you've got a lot of people looking after you. David, how would you write your own job description if you were, if you were going to be advertising the job you did? It's pretty difficult to actually write an enduring description, I think, Sally, mm. because it depends so much on the circumstance, um, the Prime Minister, um, the political institution... the the state of the political institutions around them, particularly their party, um, and the life cycle of a government. Um, I mean, you can make particular predictions about particular styles of prime minister, but particularly if they endure in office, that will, will change quite considerably with the life of a, of a government. Um, the, other, the other things I would add to Anne's description are increasingly these days you do have to look after the, the prime minister's family um, and I think to do the job responsibly you've also got to have a bit of a corporate view mm. which is something that's borne out in, in Anne's book. It's, it's a little bit different to being a Chief of Staff to a Minister mm. who is very much responsible to the person. You do have a bit of a sense of responsibility to the body corporate as well. Mm. And it's one of the really interesting ways that the chiefs, you know, who were there from Fraser through to you had just not long finished, David, in the Rudd uh, office, uh, how the job had changed uh, as one that was really about, you know, running the office and, and the personal support stuff to one that was much more this body corporate view of political management. And that's an idea that's quite broadly connoted, managing and coordinating across the government, um, just because of the extraordinary complexity um, of doing that. So... 
that was something I think that that you and um, Arthur Sinodinus and um, you know Don Russell, you know, sort of probably right. You know, Don was at the beginning of that stuff, and then that role evolved under the the more recent chiefs of staff. You um, say there's only been 26 chiefs of staff. It was formalised by Gough Whitlam in 1972. That struck me in itself as interesting because 1972, um, the It's Time campaign, it revolutionised politics uh, all in itself. That particular election campaign, I think, with the the use of uh, TV in a a way that had never been done before, the use of um, imagery and sound bites and so on. Tell us how each of you, your thoughts on how the role has changed just since 1972? Well, I think, um, you know, the major change for Whitlam was challenging this public service model that had been the dominant one. Um, And clearly, by temperament and by generation, I think, um, the Whitlam ministers and subsequent generations of ministers just weren't prepared to have an imperial um, uh, public service tell it how things were going to be. Um, so I think um, you've got to read this change in the context of ministers wanting to have much more control over policy. But as we show in the you know evolution of the job, it's really you know Malcolm Fraser. Even Malcolm Fraser struggles to get control of the public service, uh, and it's really that watershed moment where he breaks the treasury, uh, where he becomes convinced of the value of the prime minister's private office, and and all of the chiefs of staff describe that as a pivotal moment. And one of the great debates, isn't it? I mean, I, I want to get into this more thoroughly, but, but David, how, how did that present itself to you, that this ongoing tension between the Prime Minister's office uh, and, and the public service? I, I actually think it can be overstated and, indeed, one of the sort of noble intentions of the inner core and more thoughtful elements of the Rudd government when it first came to power, uh, was to wind back some of what what they thought had occurred. I'm Mm. on record in in some of Anne's uh, conversations as saying, I actually think John Howard had perhaps the most radical view of the public service of all Prime Ministers since Whitlam. Um, He established the uh, the, uh, Cabinet uh, Office or re, you know, re-established it as a, as a separate function, used it very much um, as a bit of a, I suppose, intelligence unit um, and a place of for a bit of political strategic thinking, bridge, bridging the gap between some elements of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet um, and uh, his own, own office. Um, when I came in, I, I didn't sense a great deal of tension. In fact, they, they welcomed the fact that people appeared to want to reach back to them. There's also a bit of a life of government thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly saw it in the Hawke and Keating governments, the Keating government after li- late 1994. Um, combination of two factors, an inner core of ministers who'd been there a long time and staff with them, some of whom were drawn from the public service, who were increasingly um, self-confident enough to feel they could govern, certainly without the public service, sometimes in spite of it. That was aided and abetted by a cadre of junior ministers who just didn't know better, Mm -hmm. um, because by that stage you were getting some of the dregs of the the life of the government. 
Um, and I think a similar phenomenon happened in the Howard government. Um, perhaps the ministry was a bit more consistent in its quality towards the end, but they had another phenomenon going on which led to a bit of a breakdown in that there was a total schism um, between uh, the Prime Minister's orbit, and I deliberately used the word orbit, um, and the Treasury and the Treasurer, mm. um, to the point that uh, senior bureaucrats told me that they weren't even exchanging economic mm. statistics between mm. the two departments, not because of the departments falling out, but because the Prime Minister and the Treasurer had fallen out, and in turn, a long-standing Prime Minister with a long-standing office had, had become increasingly self-reliant. Mm. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, the Howard office was so unusual in being so long, you know, having such longevity and such consistency of the senior people. Mm. I mean, that is the only office uh, to have looked like that and where people have been able to stay so long. Mm. Most chiefs of staff don't stay long at all. The average tenure is only two years, which is... Pretty incredible, not even a, a one normal lifetime yeah. of a government. Yeah. And, David, you only stayed for half that time. Why did you leave? Um, well, it's a bit of a, bit of a long story. Um, I bet it's a I, good I, story, though. I, yeah, it probably is, and I might not tell you all of it, but, um, <laughs> but you can try. I could, look, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you two explanations. Uh, and we'll pick the one that... No, no, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll pick the one that you know, after I'd sort of signed on to, to be there for a reasonable period of time. Um, but a bit of context, which is the first explanation. Interestingly, I only joined originally to spend about seven weeks cleaning up an opposition leader's office. And then uh, that morphed into a longer period of time um, because John Howard, in effect, started a de facto election campaign and Kevin said, could you stay on? And I seemed to be having a little bit of fun at that stage. Um, <laughs> but I did sort of say, win, lose or draw, I'll be out after the election and then about a month or so before he and John Faulkner prevailed upon me and said so I sort of said okay well look we'll do it on a handover basis you know potentially Alistair Jordan could be a successor or they might bring in someone else but I'll either do it for a year in office or two years in office well I've, I've got to say um, by about May of 2008 I having particularly had um, you know a good spell in in the Hawke and Keating government, I decided I was a little bit old for some of the antics. Um, and, you know, I, it's very fashionable to jump on Kevin these days, but, you know, to be totally honest, you know, I, I didn't see him developing in office the way I expected him to do. Um, you know, politicians are always a bit raw and rough around the edges, but I, I, certainly on the basis of experience, I've always been a believer in the notion that you'd be surprised by how people mm. grow mm. with the mantle mm. of office. Well, I didn't actually see him grow with the mantle of office, and this is a person who's relatively inexperienced in terms of Canberra administration, um, and it just became too hard to work with. That's really interesting uh, in so many ways, particularly as a Chief of Staff looking for that growth. So what sort of things would you be looking for in a Prime Minister in their first year of office? And you're right, you see it as a... As, on the outside, you see it. It's like they put on a little coat or something when they win power that gets more and more magical as time goes by. They, they'll grow into it somehow. Mm. But some don't. What, what would you have wanted to be seen? 
I think there was a depth of vision um, missing. Um, I think uh, he'd set himself upon attaining an office but hadn't really thought through what he wanted to do with the office. Also coming from a background in state politics and particularly some of the people he drew advice on just outside the realms of parliamentary politics also came from from state politics. He mistakenly... uh, He was mistaken in three ways. One, I think he played too much credence on the 24-hour media cycle. You can rise beyond that. I'm I'm not a subscriber to the Paul Kelly theory Mm. on that. Mm. Um, Two... um, I don't think he quite appreciated the breadth of federal government, and that's a tough thing to say, mm. but you know, federal governments have 30 departments. You can walk and chew gum um, on several footpaths um, <laughs> in, in federal government and, and get away with it. And three allied to that was a mistaken belief that a federal government could get into service provision. Mm. Federal governments are not good at service provision. They're very good at policy. Um, but they're not good at service provision. That's something for state governments. That's not to say all state governments are good at it. Mm. So that, I mean, that raises interesting questions about growth. I mean, I can theorise that. You'd see, you know, you'd want to see them shift from campaigning to governing, which is the really, really hard thing to do. Um, You'd want to see them focus on priorities, and this is really what the Chief of Staff, you know, must try to help uh, a Prime Minister to do. They all, of course, get freaked out by the um, breadth and complexity of the office. Who wouldn't? Um, when you see the avalanche of stuff coming down through the funnel. Um, but I think, I think David raises a really interesting point about um, the small target strategy and the relative inexperience of more recent Prime Ministers. And we comment on this in the book. Um, you know, Rudd cuts his teeth in state politics, as you said, David, but he's really elected in 98, so he's only eight years in the parliament by the time he becomes the leader of the opposition. If you take a Keating or a Howard, they'd been there for so much longer. So the knowing the Canberra networks, the knowing the parameters, I think, is uh, is so important. And I think um, I think for politically appointed chiefs of staff, and really the, you know, David had a lot of substantive experience having worked in the Hawke and Keating years, but really Arthur Sinodinus is the end of the line in terms of people with bureaucratic experience. And so that um, that lack of understanding, that lack of um, capacity to work the machine becomes very obvious. It was okay while John Faulkner was there, I think, uh, as Special Minister of State, but when he went to Defence, I think it became very difficult. Um, and that the lack of routine, the lack of what I'd call organisational capacity was really exposed. Mm. David, you said there were two things, and one was that he didn't grow into the role. What was the other thing? And nice and close to that microphone. Yeah, in fact, I bumped it away. Um, Look, I I mean, you know, it was the frenetic nature of the personality, pure and simple. Um, And just to draw on one of the, the points that Anne made, yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd been elected to Parliament in 1998. Um, that said, Bob Hawke hadn't spent a lot of time mm, in Parliament. Mm. It's, but he'd been in I national think, politics. I think that's part, part of the answer, but I think the, another part of the answer is that Kevin Rudd had an unusual path to power within federal politics. In essence, he bypassed 
the usual argy-bargy processes, mm. the, the crucible of particularly ALP politics in that he didn't have to play in economic policy, he didn't have to play factionally. He built himself a platform in the media essentially based on foreign mm, affairs, mm. Um, which is not actually central to Australian politics, you know, whether we like it or not. Um, and he skated past having to learn the skills of people management and, and, and having to learn the networks of yeah. Canberra and indeed his own party um, in ways that other people always have. Mm. Um, and if he hadn't followed that path, it might have stood him in, in better Bad stead. stead yeah. He might have understood that, you know, you will meet the people coming down the stairs that you met going up the stairs. Yeah, which is a very important part of the job of Chief mm. of Staff, as we talk about, which mm. is managing the dependencies. And I think mm. Prime Ministers sometimes don't understand how their dependencies have multiplied mm. um, in this contemporary kind of political context. And, I mean, that requires a, a rapport, obviously, and incredible trust. Um, it's not enough to have the Chief of Staff that can identify the problems and... I assume you didn't feel that you could fix them or you may have stayed. Is that... Is that yeah, look, I, I, I think there's a bit of that. And, you know, also perhaps, you know, I was a bit indulgent, you know, that I could luxuriate, you know, having spent, um, you know, a considerable period of time across two governments and including, you know, six or seven years in a fairly senior role in both of them. Um, but, yeah, look, that that's the case. I mean, I, I came to the role, you know, perhaps from a more corporate ALP basis in that my, my deeper loyalties were um, to the party and to a government as a whole rather than to the individual. I wasn't mm. an acolyte. Mm. Um, now, that said, there's been other chiefs of staff who've, who've come forward, particularly from the public service, who haven't been acolytes, but, you know, they've been very much the Prime Minister's man or... In exception, two cases, women. Um, not not since Hawke has there been somebody from the public service, has there? It's been it's been a long time. Well, yeah. actually, Kevin's final chief of staff was from the public service, yeah. right? Yeah. But we forget about Jim. Um, yeah, and Don Russell was from the from the public service mm. too, um, and that that can't can't be forgotten. I mean, he was a bit of an unusual public servant, mm. but he, no. he he did have public service values. Um, yeah, so it, it's interesting. In hindsight, um, you know, I think Kevin is perhaps a little bit more self-aware than people give him credit for. And on the way through to the 2007 election, he realised that if only to inoculate himself um, from questions of risk, that he had to bury that side of his personality, he had to delegate. So I found the role as Chief of Staff, up until about a month after the election, really quite easy. I mean, there were difficulties with temperament and, and things like that. I always knew that I wouldn't have a perfect rapport, but we sort of got on together. We sort of had... You know, Alistair, uh, Kevin and myself had a, had a bit of a troika and then there was a, a wider circle. Um, but I, th with the benefit of hindsight, I do think that was very much Kevin thinking... I've just got to keep that side of my personality under control because otherwise people might question how I might govern. Mm. Mm. Wouldn't want that. No. Well, no one would want that, to be fair. No, but no, indeed. Indeed. One of the um, things you write in the book, and it, it's 
it's really interesting because, I mean, everything you're saying fits with a, a, you know, a wider analysis but from different perspectives about what went on in his office and, like you, I don't want to jump on him either. I liked working with him in the brief times that I worked with him. Strange but interesting always. Mm, mm. But you write, Anne, that people get, prime ministers get the prime ministerial office that they deserve. And I thought that was a really searing uh, analysis. Mm. And you you say that after looking in more depth at both um, uh, Kevin Rudd and Alistair Jordan, who succeeded you, Mm. David, Mm. and also... uh, Julie Gillard and uh, Ben Hubbard, who was Julie Gillard's second chief of staff. Yeah. Tell us, uh, tell us about sure. that. Well, this, the work for these, for this research was done in 2009, uh, when everything was going well, actually, in the Rudd government. They'd made this, you know, transition to office. It seemed to be going very well. So we did this workshop, and we were very interested in, you know, what's the work of chiefs of staff? And people gave us this rich material and whatever. And then the events of June uh, 2010 made it a bit hard to finish the book, uh, and naturally uh, people wanted to know what went wrong. Um, so that wasn't really the book that we set out to write. It was a book about, and what we'd promised to the Chiefs of Staff was that we were co-producing, you know, uh, what might you, what might an incumbent need to know. Uh, So we took the lessons that the current and we ruminated on that for a while and wrung our hands. Uh, and then um, we, you know, we sort of decided to take the lessons that the former Chiefs of Staff had uh, suggested and then you know, road test them against the experiences of the Rudd and Gillard office. And we're very careful in the book to say that the history wars will go on and on, um, as we can see in the avalanche of books that are coming out um, from uh, political actors, which is pretty unusual in Australian politics, actually, to have such a, an extraordinary outpouring of um, first-hand accounts. Um, but uh, so we looked at, at, you know, the experience of those officers and we did some follow-up interviews. Uh, and we really, um, you know, it, it's, it's, very, it's a very difficult job and I'm not in the business of personality and I'm interested in the work and I'm interested in how people approach the work. So we've tried to make some very careful judgments about the experience of uh, uh, Alistair Jordan and of um, of Ben Hubbard. People do their best will in the world, but if a Prime Minister doesn't know what they want and doesn't know how to get it done, there is nothing that a staffer can do about that. And we make the point that um, you know, Prime Ministers get the offices they deserve, well, but they're very inattentive and they're very careless to organisational issues. And there was a time when they didn't have to worry about them because, of course, Prime Minister and Cabinet, the Public Service, took care of a lot of those things. As they've wanted to appoint their own Chief of Staff, as they've wanted to bring more of these functions to themselves, they've actually given themselves a really big problem that I don't think they understand in selection, in handling, in management, that they don't actually need to have and they haven't got the skills very often um, to address. So, you know, and the other point that I'd make is um, that... uh you know, a, a Prime Minister selects the Chief of Staff and they'll do that for different reasons, people they feel comfortable with, people who they can trust, people who, you know, they feel will give them what they need. You know, the job is such a complex one uh, and I think, 
David, you raised this in the book, that, you know, maybe you need someone to operate the machine and then someone to manage the dependencies. But again, this is the kind of uh, the bureaucratisation of the Prime Minister's office, which then gives you a management problem. And, and they're not really supposed to be management outfits. They're supposed to be support outfits. So we're at this, you know, really difficult nexus where they want these things close to them, but actually they haven't got the capacity to manage them. And it opens up those dilemmas about accountability and management and who does it. Um, and the other point I think that is crucially important for people to understand is that attacks on chiefs of staff are absolutely attacks on the leader. They're proxy attacks on the leader and people are too gutless to confront the leader. So they have a go at Alistair or they have a go at Ben mm. or they have a go at David when he's not around um, or, or Peter Credlin or whomever. And you make um, it very clear that that's part of their job. That's right. It's just to cop them. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's right. Mm. That's the, the beautiful analogy that... Um, that uh, Jeff Walsh, uh, you know, suggested of this pest controller role and the shock absorber on the other hand. So the shock absorbing, you know, taking the moods and the behaviour that David might have suggested from people under intense pressure um, and then also, you know, absorbing the, the being the deliverer of bad news and the unhappy, um, the unhappy uh, ministers who you might have had to uh, move down the line or down the Who'd food chain or whatever. do it? I mean, Arthur Sinodin has described leaving the job as Howard Stewart stuff as like getting out of jail. And, uh, I mean, when you put it like that, Anne, it's most unattractive. Uh, but obviously, David, it's not all that bad. There, there, there seems, though, no tradition that in, in recent memory anyway, before Whitlam, the tradition was private secretaries, so a different mm. variation mm. of that, that role. How long do we have to go back or, you know, to find a tradition of a chief of staff being older and wiser? Because that's what I'd want. I, <laughs> well, I yeah, just but, want well, someone well, smarter. Uh, and it actually starts off with, with, with the reverse. Um, young and stupid. Uh, no, no, young and highly intelligent. Um, mm. uh, you know, some of the, the Whitlam chiefs of staff and indeed the, the, the Whitlam office. Um, and I think you, you also need to avoid falling into what I will self-declare as the baby boomer trap. Um, <laughs> and I think poor old Alistair Jordan got too many whacks initially because of this. Mm. You know, baby boomers saying, oh, it's outrageous, you know, he's 30 and he's sitting in a Prime Minister's office. Well, sorry, baby boomers, um, when you were all growing up and when you were at the start of your careers, this sort of thing was commonplace. Um, in, and it's not necessarily a bad thing in its, in its own right. So I think a better way of characterising what you're trying to put your finger on is having a bit of common sense. Yeah, and I think experience. Um, so Alistair Jordan was not the youngest chief of staff ever. No, in fact, it was Jim Ainsley Spiegelman. Gotto. Oh, well, yeah, Ainsley Gotto was uh, 22 years old and, you know, she, she was, was in, the, she was in that principal... Uh, well, you know, she worked for Helen Coonan up until uh, the end of her Senate... Um, her career as a senator, I, I went to the office one day and was very surprised to see this mm. elegant lady um, who I knew from my research. Um, but so, you know, and certainly a politically appointed chief of staff uh, was actually the norm at the beginning because there wasn't a federal public service to draw on. So um, indeed, Edmund Barton had a politically appointed chief of staff. Uh, so, you know, we, we've got to be careful mm. about, about... And so we try to distinguish these kinds of points in the evolution. Um, I think age, as David writes, says isn't um, 
uh, isn't necessarily the most important thing, but what it seems to me that um, both uh, Rudd and Gillard seem to lack, and it might be something, David, you could comment on, um, he didn't have, they didn't have the kind of the political hardheads who were around Keating, Hawke, uh, Fraser. So that kind of... The Chief of Staff seems to become a more hierarchical uh, position, whereas in those other models, and I think arguably more successful models, there were actually several co-equals in the office, one of whom was the political head kicker. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know whether Rudd had one of those. It's not clear to me that he did. And it wasn't clear that, that Gillard had one either, although it would have had to have big boots, I suppose. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think there's a bit to be said for that, and you know the the classic uh, divide in the in the how you know there was the Keating office. In fact, you know they had the Manchu Court, as they used to describe it. But there was very much the political side, and and indeed you could also say uh, the emotional intelligence. You know, for example, supplied by Don Watson. In fact, you know I I could see a three-way mm. tension there at times observing that office fairly closely. Then then you had you know. Graham Morris, a little bit of an exception as a chief of staff, and then they fell into, you know, Tony Nutt and Arthur. Mm. That was very much that sort of divide. I've got to say, notwithstanding my own background, I'm, you know, a born and bred apparatchik. I, that's how I anticipated running it, um, rather than having myself as chief of staff or principal advisor and having an, an operating officer mm. in essence underneath me, which I had, for example, um, in the Beasley office, I deliberately self called myself uh, principal, private secretary and chief of staff and thought that Alistair would be very much like the Tony, Tony mm. Nutt. Mm. Um, in the end, his role sort of morphed a bit and then after he took over he had to do all sorts of mm. bits and pieces. Um, when I could see that wasn't quite working for me I seriously began moving towards what um, uh, Arthur Sinodidas describes as the senior advisor government role mm. in that we spent so much time sort of chasing around Kevin that I just needed someone who I know, knew could look after um, the administration yeah, the and, knew the, and knew the process pretty well. Um, I ended up dividing that into two in that I had one person who knew the bureaucratic process pretty well and one person who knew the Senate and the accountability mm, process mm. Uh, fairly well. Of course, when PM&C provided a lot of these people, you didn't have to worry about that. Yeah. And this is my point about organisational capacity. Yep. Um, and I think they really need to think about that. Well, yeah. And that's, Leaders need to think about that. that. That was an issue for me. We did... Th but, I mean, it does change from Prime Minister to Prime Minister. Knowing Kevin's personality, I uh, sat down, particularly after we knew that Terry Moran was going to arrive with a fellow called Rick Smith, mm. who's a very experienced bureaucrat, um, and we looked at models and I said, look, I think it's got to be the Jeff Yeend model of PM&C because that was built to service Malcolm Fraser's needs mm. and I see Kevin behaving yeah, yeah. exactly... Extraordinary parallels between the, Kevin the and Fraser. The same way. Um, what we found, though, was it didn't quite work because um, I don't think... Kevin wasn't prepared to accede to a PM&C like mm. that. He, he sort of toyed with it mm. but got a, a bit confused on the way through with notions of PM&C as a consultancy, et cetera, et cetera which was also also reinforced some of Terry's thoughts, I mm. think. Um, I think if you ask Terry now, he would probably try and do it a different way. And I think that illustrates, Sally, a really difficult thing for governments that have been out 
for a fair while. And mm. so, you know, the um, Howard government was in for 11 years, you've been in opposition for 11 years, you lose a lot of that knowledge and network and relationship, you're deliberately starved of it in opposition. So I don't think that, that Labor understood how much PM&C had changed in, in responding to the Howard government. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure whether you agree with me, but, you know, we think that the, the abolition of the Cabinet Policy Unit was a bad idea because PM&C couldn't pick up the routine straight away because it takes time for the system to adapt. Uh, so I think this is a real problem in terms of wanting to do it yourself because you can't know these things when you're in opposition. They're the very arcane internal um, issues, but they're critically important when you need to take over. On the outer of all, you know, that, that the heart of that relationship and what's going on in the office is the myriad, well, infinite number of things that can go on that affect what you're trying to do. Exogenous crises, so, you know, the Malaysia Airlines crash or um, a ministerial scandal or, uh, uh, you know, the countless things that happen that are unexpected, but also things that you might not think affect culture, um, but do, such as moving from the old Parliament House to the new one. Yeah. Mm. And mm. I loved what you uh, got into on that, because it's a really obvious thing, isn't it, when you move from a very small building where people are going to bump into each other and be forced to talk to each other and know each other, and then you go to this vast, monolithic, very strange, cold building where you're all separated and... Um, that that is going to change the vibe. Mm. It's going to change people's relationships. Mm. How, um, you know, David, I'll, I'll go to you first. That do you? How do you break up the prime minister's time or allow the prime minister to both, you know, have the priorities and the meetings that have to be done, but allow for a certain amount of informality to allow this person to breathe? Yep. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Look, um, it's one of the things where you, you have to be quite directive. You've also got to have a bit of a willing patient to do it. So, you, you know, you've got to free up diary time. You've got to recognise that there will be squeaky wheels who need a bit of time, but perhaps not so much time. Um, in fact, you know, one of the other Chiefs of Staff, you know, described the problem of the friends of the Prime Minister. Um, <laughs> and the Howard office, you know, described what their Monday mornings used to be like after the Prime Minister had spent you know, all weekend telephoning people without staff knowing about it. <laughs> Absolutely outrageous behaviour. Um, so you, you, you do have to be mindful of, of that sort of thing. I mean, it's not just the feeding and watering, it's, it's the thinking time, it's the interaction time, it's, it's, it's the bumping into people time. And it is difficult in that building and it gets more and more difficult, particularly in the current environment with all the security apparatus. Mm. For example, mm. they've just introduced almost a further set of gates around mm. the ministerial wing where yeah. you can't just, you know, odds and sods can't wander around anymore. Um, funny things, like, uh, I mean, I lived and worked in the old parliament house. A lot of it's romanticised. There's, uh, there's no fun, mm. you know, six people in a room about the size of this mm. here sharing it with an MP and a toilet and cupboards. I mean, mm. it's just... It's not fun. Um... But, you know, there used to be corridor parties, et cetera, et cetera, and it allows people to blow off a bit of steam. That persisted a bit in the new house, and then you know, once someone pulled out a football one night and kicked it through a plasterboard wall. So 
<laughs> the Corridor Party stopped. Now, you might think that is a piece of arcane trivia, mm. but it, was, it actually had an effect on the dynamics of the mm. ministerial mm. wing. Mm. Yeah. There's a lovely anecdote, and about um, from Paul Keating's Chief of Staff, and when uh, he came into office, and as well as all the other things, you know, attached to being Prime Minister, he really wanted to be Prime Minister for the Arts. And his Chief of Staff said, you know, no way, Paul, you've got enough on your plate. But with the benefit of hindsight, realised uh, that that was a mistake, that, in fact, uh, Bob Hawke, John Howard, these guys had their sport, they had mm. these passions, um, that they could fit their prime ministerial duties to engage those passions at times. Yeah. Uh, Keating didn't have sport, mm. but he had the arts and mm. that, 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 in fact, to have allowed him to do that would have been like recreation mm. for him mm. and mm. probably a good vehicle for him thinking mm. and contemplating ideas. Yeah. It was a really interesting And to tale. now have seen the interviews and, uh, and hear him talk about how he used music mm. um, in that way, which, you know, those comments preceded that, I think is an extraordinary insight. I've been wondering with Abbott about rest and recreation, you know, which is one of the things that Chiefs of Staff say is so important. Um, you know, there's a man who has done an enormous amount of exercise, uh, is extraordinarily disciplined. You could just see that that trip to uh, the Indigenous community was going to be so good for him. And, you know, it's something he's always done, mm. visit Indigenous communities. And I thought to myself, when that trip had to be truncated, what a shame that was. And, you know, he's been in lots of other rides and runs. Well, Prime Ministers don't have the luxury of doing that. But where's the rest and recreation? Um, particularly with all of the crises that they've mm. encountered. Uh, you know, that guy has got to be working 18 hours a day. Uh, and for someone of his physicality, uh, you know, whatever he does with Putin mm. when he comes, um, it would be... It, it, I think it's really important to think about how do they manage that. Mm. Perhaps it might uh, be good for both of them. But... <laughs> it would just they, be ugly, I think. They both like getting around in their bathers, don't they? Oh, it uh, just oh. doesn't bear thinking about... They could it? have a decathlon together. Yeah. Well, they could swim in the Brisbane River. That would be the end of that, you know. Um, something that does seem to be working very well for Abbott is his relationship with Peter Credlin, the current Chief of Staff. And, uh, I mean, I, after reading this book, I, I just think, how do you do it? How, I mean, assuming, too, that with every incoming chief, the responsibility or the, it, it, it somehow seems to get greater, uh, um, unless, I suppose, you're brilliant at delegating it, but how do you each think that she is going and how do you read that relationship? Um, my personal view is that she's made a, a pretty reasonable fist of it, you know, perhaps slightly better than that. I, I think a lot of her early press was quite unfair um, and you know, while it might disappoint the likes of us in the chattering classes and, and some of the voyeurs, some of the notion of slowing down the politics was perhaps a good thing. Mm. And, um, you know, my, my friends in the public service, you know, who are a bit more fair-minded fair about it, say that has led to some improve or some restoration of the Cabinet process. Not a perfect one, um, but uh, that that's helped. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about shock absorbers, well, she's been a, a great shock absorber Mm. Um, for the prime minister, and that's probably you know why she gets some of, some mm. of the bad bad press that that she she does. Um, 
that said, I, I mean, I think that the jury's still a little bit, little bit out. Um, the government, we, Anne and I were actually talking about it the other day. Um, you know, the government, in, in some funny ways, is yet to find its footing completely. In that mm. it's it's a government that came to power with a lot of unresolved tensions between some of the central personalities with it, and they've only really just st- started to play out in the aftermath mm. of its first budget. Mm. Um, and, you know, in some senses, it's her task to manage through the mm. threads of all of that mm. um, with one or two people who will actively refuse to be managed. Yeah, I mean, just the comment, I'd offer a couple of comments on that. It is much too early to tell uh, because they're still in the transition phase and, you know, there's been commentary about their capacity to stop campaigning. They are in some campaign habits. Um, The second thing is, of course, there have been two women chiefs of staff who've preceded Peter and they all get the same uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not irrelevant, her gender. I think the fact that she's very tall and striking Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there's a a couple of photographers who are fascinated with her and and really um, follow her. So there's a lot of material there we could think about. Um, I think the other thing is she's an unusual chief of staff in this way as, as Prime Minister's chief of staff. She was uh, chief of staff to Nelson. She worked in Turnbull's office uh, and she's worked in Abbott's office. And I've thought to myself, in some ways, she was always going to be Prime Minister's chief of staff. It was just really the question of who the Prime Minister was going to be, right? So this is unusual. She's got, she's got extraordinary networks in Canberra, so she hasn't got a lack of uh, knowledge of ex- or expertise because she's got an immense amount of political experience. Uh, so I think the relationship between them is obviously a very trusting one, and in lots of ways that's the most important thing. But she, it's inevitable that she'll brush people up the wrong way, and I think she is a bit of a lightning rod for some of the malcontents um, you know, who hoped to, to get a Guernsey sooner. Well, there's also the, um, the the sort of question of how public the role of a chief of staff would be. With Peter Credlin, it's quite difficult to separate it from gender, sadly. Mm. Mm. Um, but, you know, my mum asked me tonight, who are you talking to tonight? And she follows politics pretty closely. And I said, oh, David Epstein. And she said, now, who's that? Who's that? And I said, oh, he was Kevin Rudd's first chief of staff. And, and she said, oh, before... Before um, um, Alistair, and, uh, and so she 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 hadn't heard of you. Mm. She was grappling for Alistair, and she, then she said, "That's the same job Peter Credlin does, yes. isn't it?" And yes. I realised there's this escalation of public mm. um, uh, recognition. Yeah, that's yeah. something the chiefs of staff themselves talked about. Um, and, you know, they were a bit uncomfortable, actually, about the evolution of this, of, you know, finding yourself on the financial reviews power panel. Um, and I Which don't know, you David, did, did you? Yeah. David did, yes. yes. But my mum didn't know you, so, you know. That's all right, okay. that's good. Yeah. So I got away with yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. That nice man from Optus. <laughs> it was covert. It was very covert. I was here to fix yeah. the phones, yeah. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think Arthur had, uh, you know, brand recognition. And yeah. I think, uh, you know, Alistair did for reasons that, um, you know, we've talked about. I don't know how well Ben Hubbard would have been, uh, you know, what a household mm, name true. he would be. So it, it, it sort of depends on the role um, that the person plays and, and the way the Prime Minister uh, engages with them. But certainly, uh, you know, the Chiefs were very conscious this is becoming uh, a much more public role. And that, of course, brings a whole number of implications that were never anticipated, actually, uh, I think, when the, when the, job, yeah. when and, the job developed. And it can bring risk. Um, yeah. I mean, I was... Very conscious. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a tradition of you know the best machine is is the silent machine. Um, 
but I was also very conscious of the fact that you know, I'd come from a background where, you know, particularly from the coalition side, I, I had been a bit notorious as being, <laughs> you know, the evil propagandist um, heading the ministerial media group and the national media service in the Hawke and Keating governments. And I thought that was a natural pathway to become a lightning rod as chief of staff, aside from how I wanted to mm. approach the job. So I deliberately sort of reined it back in, it indeed reined back in my wandering around the wider Parliament House building and just kept myself to the bureaucracy and the ministry, um, to the point that John Lyons in, in the famous article on, on Kevin sort of criticised me for having a low profile. But I've got to say, <laughs> among my peers, that was regarded as a mm. good thing and I thought mm. it was a good thing. Mm. Um, but it is, it is interesting and I don't think... You know, I'd perhaps be one of the last who could get away with trying that you just couldn't get away with it mm, these days. Mm, mm. Gee, you can't win, can you? Too visible, uh, not visible enough, and uh, you know, too so, much public service, life. not enough political <laughs> sassy. It's uh, really a remarkable role what it what it entails. If you have a question, you can put your hand up, and if someone puts a microphone in it, just start talking. Uh, on the back there. Is there someone? Yeah. Um, the office of Prime Minister seems to be getting more and more powerful. Is this sort of what plagued Kevin Rudd? It was just too much concentrated power? I mean, do you think Cabinet and the caucus should have held a sanction to him? He said, you've just got to organise everything more cohesively and things will run more smoothly. Well, shall I have a go at that one? Um, Centralisation around, around first ministers is an international trend that characterises every t- different type of political system. Um, so, you, you know, it's really difficult to separate the kind of the macro trends that are pushing everything towards centralisation, um, you know, from individual personalities. Um, it's so funny because we think of prime ministers as being enormously powerful, but actually they're very constrained and they feel very constrained and they've got all these people they have to bargain and negotiate with. So they don't feel that powerful, really, and the chief of staff spends a lot of time um, managing those kinds of things. Um, I mean, I think they exercise more control over less. Um, but if you think that uh, cabinet government's over, you only just have to look at what happened to Rudd to see that when the colleagues, when you lose the confidence of your colleagues, you're gone. And so, you know, the, some, of, some scholars talk about this as kind of being institution stretch. You know, it, it goes so far and Maggie Thatcher was a powerful prime minister and, you know, Tony Blair was purportedly a presidential prime minister. Well, in the end, uh, you know, it snapped back and, uh, and these people aren't directly elected. And, and taking on, you know, trying to do too many things exposes your vulnerabilities in lots of ways as well as some of the implementation and service delivery challenges became very apparent for Rudd, I think. So I hear what you're saying, and I know it's a, a frequent kind of criticism, um, but I think it's one that, that's often... Um, we conflate the amount of attention they get with the amount of capacity they have, I think. I just can't, for the life of me, I will never understand why somebody didn't go to Rudd, and presumably it was Alistair Jordan's job, and say, you are in deep trouble with your colleagues you need to fix it, that, that, that this didn't happen it, it astonishes me. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it didn't happen. I mean, I, I, I think it probably... Well, I know it happened mm. on various occasions to varying degrees. Um, 
you know, and I, I wouldn't claim to be a, a soothsayer, but, I mean, I, in some of my final conversations with Kevin, just because it was sort of getting a bit odd as I was going out, um, I said, you want to be careful because you could find yourself in a situation. But I'm by no means unique. Um, I think the other thing that people forget is those that lit the touch paper hadn't really thought through what they'd lit, and I don't think anyone appreciated the visceral antagonism. Mm. I mean, to lose effectively 70-odd votes in caucus mm. in the space of three mm. hours is just phenomenal. Mm. Mm. Um, yes, it was amazing. Yeah. Mm. And it actually tells you something about the capacity to learn, which I think is interesting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, a question to David. Um, you, you commented that the chiefs of staff increasingly become involved in protecting the Prime Minister's family. I'm wondering what you mean, in, in what ways and for what reasons, and, and why a function like that can't be delegated elsewhere. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the re- I'll start with the last first. The reason why it can't be delegated elsewhere, although it should be, and, and we should be mature enough to be able to handle that, is the system just will not allow it. The institutions do not have the, the maturity to, to cope with it. Um, there's been some management within the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet um, of some of the official residences and things like that. Not particularly effective. It's, you know, here's a policy department, and you've got two or three middle-ranking bureaucrats trying to manage a cook and a gardener and the gutters and things like that. Aside from, you know, what you've got to do in a, in a ceremonial way. Um, also, you know, our per, you know, as Australians, we always want to, you know, deal with the tall poppies and our prurience and, and things like that. We just, you know, unlike the Americans who just say, okay, well, someone's in office, you need the, the trappings of office. It's you need a the hugely respected role in the White House. I can't remember the name of it, but the person who looks after all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, so they just sort of get on with it, and the Brits, to some degree, sort of get on with it. We've never quite done that in Australia, which is unusual given our federal system of government in that most people have to transport mm-hmm. themselves to Canberra. So you, in the very, very early days, the, you know, the, the foreign minister and the treasurer and the prime minister all had residences. And indeed, I think... Um, well, CSRO still owns the foreign minister's residence, the, the former treasurer's residence maybe the ACT government, but it's leased as a private house. Um, you know, that's, you know that, that's just the simple things about, you know, sort of where you live, how you entertain, etc., etc. But there's no separate apparatus that can deal with it. No-one will tolerate the expense. People are worried about the political risk in establishing it, etc., etc. How it's been managed in the last 20 to 25 years or so, um, up until the Howard period when not because John Howard wanted to dismantle it, and I don't apportion any blame, but one of the indirect consequences of him effectively living out of Sydney was what apparatus there was fell away. Mm. Suddenly the, the Prime Minister sort of lost a sort of butler stroke cook stroke messenger. You can't re-establish that. I tried to do that by having a political staffer who did the same thing, and it lasted about six months before you know, there was this scandal and we had to get rid of the person... I then tried to have an office administrator who looked after the accounts of their lodge because, you know, PM&C just couldn't do it. 
um, the people who were doing it um, just didn't know how to be buy the cornflakes. Didn't so, know how, that's just so, damning, so isn't it? And then the people who are actually given the job, of course, their natural desire is to over-service. Mm. And if a first family or a prime minister sort of don't know the degree to which they're being over-serviced or whatever, um, you got problems arise. So you've got to keep an eye on it. It's not, you know, I've, you wouldn't want to overstate it, mm. but you wouldn't find the president's chief of staff keeping an eye on it in the US but we just don't have anyone who does it here. That is quite unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? That the chief that that falls back on the yeah. chief of staff yeah. who has all these other things to worry about. Well, it's a very personal thing, isn't it, where people live and, you know, I mean, I suppose the Rudds were the first since, uh, you know, since the Keatings to have yeah. a young, you know, to have a young uh, child, well, not young child, I mean, Marcus was, what, sort of 14 when, yeah. when they came to... And, camp. you know, in the Keating government, I can remember... Jeff Walsh, one of my predecessors, you know, he had to deal with questions about the door on the dog kennel. It was front page news in Sunday papers, you know. Had Reuben the dog scratched the paint on the kitchen door or on the dog kennel? I mean, oh, give me a break. <laughs> on the back there. Um, there was a comment made earlier, I'm not sure who made it, but there was um, similarities between the early part of the Fraser uh, office and the early part of the Rudd office. Can you tease out what those similarities might have been and, 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 and then how were they resolved and what were the differences in the end? Yeah. Um, I think it might have been something I said, um, and I wasn't actually referring to the Prime Ministerial Office per se, I was referring to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, um, in that Malcolm Fraser, particularly under Geoffrey End, had a very large Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet which shadowed every area of government quite extensively. Um, and indeed, some of the best and the brightest of the public mm. service uh, you know, over the last two decades um, were part of that department because the secretary had to find the best and the brightest in the public service, and they got to work on meaty issues with prime ministerial authority, and they you know, accelerated their, their development as public servants as a result of it. Um, and that's where I thought we might go. Well, we didn't quite get there, um, you know, for a ra range of reasons. The Prime Minister himself, I think, felt that wasn't quite aware of um, his own ability to leverage um, the authority and the skills of a, of a good uh, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. So parallel um, apparatus evolved, some of it within the ministerial wing, some of it within his own office, some of it indeed him indirectly commissioning consultants who then worked for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I think in terms of style and demand for advice and briefing, uh, very similar, enormous mm. similarities in, in style and sort of voracious appetite for information yep. um, between Fraser and Rudd. Um, Fraser was able to process it, mm. I think, was the, yeah. probably the difference. Mm. Oh... Um, well, that, that, you know, the advice... I mean, what we've seen come out in a lot of the uh, reportage and commentary and memoir is that um, the departments would wait until Gillard was acting Prime Minister and then there'd be an avalanche of briefs into her office because she'd clear the paper. Mm. Uh, so he'd... And, and, I mean, seriously, 
you know, I live in Queensland. I went back to Queensland from the Commonwealth in 1994. The first thing I heard was about the guy who'd run the Cabinet Office, who would demand briefings, would ring people up in the middle of the night, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it seems to me to have been a repeat of what he did in a bureaucratic capacity in uh, Wayne Goss's office um, and then as head of the Cabinet Office. You know, like, and just that kind of apparent... And, you know, Gillard's talked about this on the record, the apparent incapacity to prioritise the work. Now, maybe, you know, it might have been possible to devise, for the Chief of Staff to devise a system, but, the, you know, my favourite quote in the book, I don't know if it's yours, Sally, is, you know, Jesus Christ or Leo McGarry could have been um, Kevin Rudd's Chief of Staff and it might not have made any difference. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's the point about organisational capacity. You can, in the end, the leader has to do it. Uh, they have to act on the material. I actually have a Jimmy Carter parallel theory that I'll talk to you about later, David. Leo Mike McGarry, of course, was President Bartlett's <laughs> chief yeah. of staff. It killed him, sadly. Yeah, David, I'm really terrible. glad it didn't kill you. No, thank you. And uh, <laughs> that you could be here with us tonight uh, to share your insights and experience. I, I feel like we're getting ever closer to understanding in some better way what is going on in our national capital. Uh, and it really, it's been fascinating tonight. Thank you, Anne, and thank you, David. Please thank Anne Tien and David Epstein. And um, just to let you know, uh, if you're not a regular at the Fifth Estate, it, every fortnight on a Tuesday evening, um, the next one in two weeks' time, we're going to be looking at um, Defence, National Security and ISIS. And we've got um, two guests, only one of them that I can tell you about tonight. The, the, the second one, if you check the website uh, in the next day or two, she will be absolutely amazing, but we're only 95% sure that we've got her. Uh, but uh, who we do have is uh, James Brown, who was a soldier in Afghanistan and in Iraq. He's now at the Lowy Institute. Uh, he is a really interesting thinker and writer. He wrote a little book uh, earlier this year, I think, or late last year, uh, on a the Anzac tradition and the culture of defence. It was a very interesting book with really different ideas and this is from somebody who is clearly a, an intellectual but also somebody that has fought um, the other person that um, oh, I'm dying to tell you about but I can't um, <laughs> is just as amazing so check out the, uh, the the website for the fifth estate the next couple of days thank you so much for coming and have a wonderful and safe evening Catch the Fifth Estate every two weeks during our events programs. And of course, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You'll also find videos of these and other discussions at wheelercentre.com. Thanks for your company.